Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We're the radio show that talks about uh, issues and uh, current events and even some humorous things about women and that women would be interested in, primarily domestic violence and sexual assault, any kind of interpersonal violence. We are privileged today to have Rita Henley Jensen with us. She's the founder of Women's E-News, and if you have not gone to Women's E-News, find it, go to it. It has uh, just a wealth of, of stories from all over the world regarding women and violence against women and the progress women are making. She's a former senior writer for the National Law Journal and columnist for the New York Times Syndicate. And Rita has worked for more than 30 years in journalism and uh, won all sorts of awards, including the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism Alumni Award. And we are happy, happy to have her here. She's also a survivor of domestic violence and a former welfare mother who earned her degrees from Ohio State University and Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. Welcome, Rita, thank you for joining us today. Well, I'm just delighted to be here. It's great. It's just wonderful good. what you're doing. Oh, good. Well, and I want to remind everybody that they can call in today. The phone number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. So join us in our conversation, and uh, we are going to talk today about women in the world, things that are going on worldwide. And Rita, you're quite a traveler. You're quite an expert in all sorts of worldwide things. What are some of the where are some of the countries you've been to? Well, um, I've been to Saudi Arabia and Lebanon and Egypt and uh, South Africa and of course France and London and the U.S., Canada, um, Mexico. I'm trying to get around. Yeah, no kidding. No <laughs> kidding. You, I, I envy you all your travel. And one of the things you do as you travel around is to uh, deal or look at and examine women's issues. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've got quite uh, quite a uh, number of countries that we're going to start off with today because I've been reading all sorts of things about things over the around the world that are going on with women and domestic violence and of course we're kind of used to hearing about India and uh the Middle East and some of the awful things the awful stories coming out of there about dealing with um uh women's issues but I'm going to start with Canada Right yeah. now, there's a Canadian woman, and I'm Canadian, so I have a particular affinity for this one. A Canadian woman was attacked by her former partner, and she's living in Britain. And uh, her name is Christine, apparently. She's told she has to leave the country. And she's been there for six years because rules allowing foreign domestic violence victims to stay in Britain do not apply to her because they weren't married and her partner was not British. So they're kind of saying, okay, lady, get out of the country. Just go back home, even though six years has passed since you've been there. Um, is this kind of typical, where a country will tell a victim, just get the heck out? Well, <laughs> you know, I don't think anything in uh, Britain is typical. Uh, they do still have their monarchy. Um, <laughs> but I think what is typical is that uh, that women who have been victimized are often re-victimized by others, put, uh, uh, punished for being a victim. And that's true in insurance companies. It certainly is true. I was uh, sitting in the Manhattan Divorce Court last week um, watching the proceedings, and um, the, the mother was at custody battle. The mother showed up with a black eye, and the judge said, "Well, I don't, I don't believe he hit her." And she had called the police and everything. Well, she, the judges didn't believe her. Why didn't she believe her? Oh, well, because her uh, ex-husband is a banker, and bankers don't do things like that. <laughs> so, in this day like, and age, in this day and age, in Manhattan, and this judge was. Not an old male fuddy duddy. It was a, a, a she's a relatively young woman. So mm. in Manhattan. So if you can go from Manhattan to London, um, and you know anywhere, 
uh, Japan, China, at, at, uh, the the people who say I was uh, he hit me, he hit me, whatever he threatened to kill me, they're not treated well. They're just not treated well. Well, you know, I always say that uh, the American courts operate under three premises. This is my own my own theory here. They operate under the uh, the idea that um, a father has a right to his children. Right. And they operate under the premise that just because he hurts someone else, i.e. the mother, doesn't mean he's going to hurt his kids. And they operate right. under the theory that women lie. Uh, yeah. Um, the lack of credibility, I mean, I think that that's, that's re- very cross-cultural. And it is, and like, it is uh, the system's best interest not to believe her. Because then, you know, they don't have to take this guy to jail or treat it seriously. She's a liar. And women's lack of credibility plays out in all sorts of scenarios. But it's very pronounced when you start talking custody battles. And if there's any allegation of domestic violence over and over again, and I'm sure some of your callers uh, are familiar with cases if they didn't experience themselves, that women who have claimed that their batterer battered them and abused the children, they lose custody of the children to the children's assailant because they're not oh, yeah. believed. So well, I think I, this mentioned, is, I mentioned yeah. to you that I wrote a book called Why Doesn't She Just Leave? Shameless plug here, available on Amazon by Heather Stark. And in one of those scenarios in our book, one of the vignettes, uh, it's a woman who did lose custody to the abuser, and uh, it was such a, I mean, it happens more and more frequently anymore, um, where the women just are not believed. They're just not believed. They're just not and believed. And, uh, you know, in uh, certain countries, if a woman is raped, she has to have four male witnesses, right, <laughs> in order to prove her case. And it's like, uh, we're not that far. We're not fault. that bad, but <laughs> we're yeah. not that uh, far. And and it's, so yeah. it's, in, it's sort of intrinsic, and that's, that's an extreme example, but it's uh, exactly why would we want to go through this whole, whole ordeal of a custody battle, et cetera, um, without believing strongly and having our own evidence. Anyway, it's like really very difficult. So, I mean, they may not be believing her in London or taking it seriously, and, um, you know, um, in some isolated cases in the U.S., they have given women political asylum if they've been victimized by domestic violence, but that is very rare. Well, in this particular case, uh, Christine's abuser, her former partner, who was an architect, pleaded guilty uh, in August of this year to assault and occasioning actual bodily harm. And then he apparently is a German citizen, so he moves back to Germany, and he was uh, given a 12-month suspended sentence and ordered to pay restitution. Uh, Christine had hoped that uh, the case would be settled, but then um, the U.K. immigration rules came in and said, no, you're a foreign national from non-European states whose relationship breaks down due to domestic violence, and that means you have to leave. Pretty amazing, right? Yeah, exactly. So, in other words, it's, it's hard not country. to be. It's hard. It's so hard not to be angry all the time, like because yeah. there's, because <laughs> as you point out, there's this these crazy injustices, you know, every week. And you yeah. go, yeah. You go, what? Well, and, and, and every time one is in the newspaper or in the news, people who are hearing it seem to think it's unique that this is a one-shot deal. It isn't this yeah. an, a, an anomaly. When in fact, these kinds of things happen all the time. They happen all the time. They just don't don't always make the news. So, well, let's go on to another one. We can't change Great Britain this morning. So, how about Italy? Oh, okay. and I I actually got an email uh, from someone who couldn't listen to our show this morning about this story. So, after I get your take on it, I'll tell you her take. Okay. Okay. 
the headline is, and this is from Women in the World, um, and it is uh, from the Daily Beast, actually, their section called Women in the World. And Italy is started a new curriculum. They're teaching boys n- not to kill their girlfriends. A new high school curriculum in Italy aims to tackle skyrocketing femicide rates by teaching boys to fight the urge to hurt or murder their girlfriends. What is this? I mean, it's kind of shocking that they um, peg it as a class on how not to kill your girlfriend. Um, What's your take on this? I mean, is it? I don't. I don't don't know who used that peg, but uh, rare. This is a rare example where people uh, look to boys and men to change their behavior instead of women and girls change their behavior. Right, right. We're not yes. supposed to go out at night, or we're not supposed to have uh, extramarital affairs because then, you know, or our, our whatever, and then our murder would be justified. So it's it's sort of rare, and I don't know of another occasion in which, a, a, you know, a public policy body like an education system said, "Oh, we're going to focus on the perpetrator," yeah, or yeah. future or future perpetrators. And, yep. yeah. And, and, so yeah. In, in that respect, it's good. I mean, I don't know. Um, Italy is saying they have a, a domestic violence fatality about every two days, apparently, at least reported as, that, as such. And um, Parliament apparently uh, met in a special session in August to press new laws to make certain crimes against uh, uh, partners illegal. Um, but uh, they decided to to teach the next generation, um, and they decided to do it this way. So they said that the uh, gist of the classes are to, um, I guess they're working with boys and a girl, and or and girls, and the boys um, uh, are talked about re- not raising voices or using violence, and the girl is taught to stand her ground and not let him dominate her. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of interesting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it sort of makes you want, not only is the food great, but <laughs> it makes you want to move to Italy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I will tell you what um, my uh, PhD advisor emailed me when she heard about the the uh, show and, and our topic. Now, come on, as soon as my computer decides to cooperate you know what i did i left it on all night and sometimes when i do that with open windows it goes slowly really slowly so (laughs) here we how awful yeah i know i need to just shut it down and restart it because i haven't turned it off for about four days i don't know if you do that or not and her comment her name is mary and she said heather while this looks terrible i see it as fantastic Yes, the fact huh. that they need these classes in the first place sucks, but they are having these classes instead of pushing it under the rug. Someone has acknowledged the problem and has taken steps to do something about it. And then she asks, who? Is it one person, one organization, a consortium? Does this school-based program have an adult component? Really interesting, and I couldn't find anything that showed that it had an adult component. Other questions I have, who took the steps in Italy to make this public? Who funded it? Is the government involved? Is there a social marketing campaign going on to increase people's awareness of this problem? Are girls and parents getting classes as well? And I think those are all really good questions. Some of them were in this news story. Yes, girls uh, are getting the, the training as well, although it doesn't specifically say there's some sort of social campaign going on. Clearly the government is invested in tackling this problem, and uh, it uh, looks like it is a, a government initiative. I'm sure, like in most countries, that the government acted based on... Um, well, it said parliament, yeah, yes. Yeah, I'm uh, yes, yeah. I'm sure that they acted based on, you know, the the citizenry and and the um demands from the citizens to do something. And uh so yeah, when I I have to admit when I first read that headline, I thought, "Oh my god." Um but the more I think about it, the more I think, "Yeah, that is a good thing." And yeah. it's good to be that blunt, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. okay, maybe maybe that'll spread all throughout Europe and uh, maybe 
Italy can call Great Britain <laughs> <laughs> and we can do something for Christine. I don't know. <laughs> well, and what's let's... next, Iran? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, didn't I read in, I, I just read, I think, I, I'll tell you what I did. I woke up at about uh, 4 o'clock in the morning this morning and I couldn't get back to sleep, so I had my iPad with me and so I did a little searching, you know, <laughs> But the problem is when you wake up in the morning, it's hard to remember what you what you read at, at 4 o'clock in the morning. Yes. But I believe I read that President Obama actually had a conference call with the leader of Iran. He did indeed. He did indeed. And um, I slept through the nights, but I did read it this morning. <laughs> so, um, so, yes. And, uh, you know, in the, the piece uh, on Women's E! News yesterday uh, that I wrote, I went to a ceremony in Central Park um, right before the General Assembly began. And, you know, his conversation was the outcome of the General Assembly because they didn't shake hands at the General Assembly, but uh, they didn't bump into each other. There was, like, a lot of talk about that. But in the end, apparently, um, the the president of Iran accepted a phone call from Obama on his on his way to the airport. So that's very exciting. I think they were talking more about nuclear weapons. But yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but uh this ceremony I went to and I wrote about on our our website was about the connection between war and domestic violence. And the the speakers one a very prominent Buddhist a priest who was female, and uh, uh, the top people in the it's called the UN Women. It's the organization that funds women's programs throughout the world using UN funds and also raising funds. So they made this connection that said, "Without peace behind the door, there will never be peace in the world." And we're like, oh, my God. Um, Yeah, so I think uh, Iran has experienced, if you recall, chemical weapons at at the hands of uh, Saddam Hussein. And and they really do know, it's public knows the cost of those um, in, in life lost as well as, you know, um, damage throughout the throughout the country and the soil and the water, et cetera. So um, maybe he got shook up, and and I think if if they start talking peace, it's probably good for women in Iran. Yeah, unless you know the the I mean aggressors are aggressors, are they not? I mean maybe yeah uh, maybe they'll they'll turn more toward the home to to as an outlet for aggression. Well, I thought you might raise that, and I think it just demonstrates um, how little we know about domestic violence. You know? Okay. Correct me. You know? Enlighten me. (laughs) Well, I was thinking, uh, uh, for example, in Costa Rica, which is phenomenally, you know, known worldwide for its peaceful nature and the the countryside, et cetera, and the Mm. people being treated with respect. Do they have domestic violence? In Afghanistan, how bad was Was there more domestic violence when the Soviets were in charge or when the Taliban was in charge? Mm. Good point. Good point. So I, so I just wonder what, what the interplay is between the aggressive stance of the government, whether it's war or... Um, you know, internal strife such as Syria, um, or or not, and we don't know. I that. don't know the answer to that. I mean, it it seems to me, based on what I know about domestic violence, is that um, basically it's about control. And, right. You know, so um, if I can pick out something to control, then it it. Helps me um, do what meet whatever needs I have to meet as the aggressor, as the perpetrator. Right. So, how does that play against a bigger picture of aggression? 
that's what we don't know. Hmm. Okay. Huh. Well, hopefully, hopefully. In other, we'll, and I, you know, does the Taliban get because it's so anti women and women's rights? Does it give people who who were not uh, abusers? They might have what you know. They might have pushed people around, but they were not abusers. Does it give them permission? Or does it take on that role and do, pe- uh, do people say, oh, well, I don't have to. I'll just report you to the Taliban and they'll murder you. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, boy, I don't and either. I think there's a lot. I mean, I guess early in the 70s it was, it was like, oh, it's the woman's fault. So we've moved past that. I think it's widely understood that it's a crime. At least it's in the United States. It's understood in most places it's a crime. And it's not her fault. He has, uh, you know, whatever uh, anger management issues, you know, whatever um, language they use. But to go further and say, okay, does does that somehow connect with Obama saying, oh, we'll just bomb them a, uh, Syria a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or right. Saddam, <laughs> you know. Uh, Saddam Hussein, who was like this uh, really phenomenally brutal uh, person and leader, but overall women in Iraq were doing better than other parts in the Middle East that had access to education and stuff like that. So what was domestic violence in Iraq under a totalitarian, brutal regime, but for a certain segment of the female population, they 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 were doing well. It's very confusing, and we don't know. The anthropologists have not made the, connected those dots for us in any yeah. way. Yeah, but you know, the more I I learn about domestic violence, the more I realize that we need to know so much more, so yeah. much more, in order to answer the questions and resolve the issue. Um, and that would be so nice if we could resolve that issue. <laughs> I mean, really. And then maybe, uh, you know, um, the people in charge wouldn't um, use chemical weapons or uh, drones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe we could yeah. just change the whole human mentality to think that, you know, Okay, um, I can't really with children yeah. parallel play is okay that you don't have to dominate another <laughs> another <laughs> culture another people. We could all play side by side. We don't have yeah. to play the same games, but we can play quietly side <laughs> by side. Remember that with well, your kids? <laughs> no, I missed that era. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah, the parallel play. <laughs> they go supposedly they go through a stage and then they come out of it. Maybe we shouldn't Maybe we shouldn't encourage coming out of it. <laughs> uh, well, it is a puzzle, you know, and one of the things I've often puzzled about, and that I think that what we're talking about today is all the unknowns, is why does somebody who believes at least that uh, that he loves his wife and loves his children, why do they hurt them so badly? It doesn't build a good relationship. Yeah, but you have to remember what he needs out of the relationships, not necessarily what uh, other people need out of a relationship. The abuser um, needs a, to control. I uh, know, but there's lots of ways to control. And um, well, you can start you know. by controlling yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, I saw Cheryl Sandberg. The, I saw Cheryl Sandberg uh, talk the other night, and she says, "Only marry a man." who you can imagine um, carrying the basket, the laundry basket, into the laundry room. And I assume that you meant, and do the laundry and, you know, yeah. sort and fold and dry. So let's just assume that that's what you meant. <laughs> so <laughs> if they were out there dropping it on the floor saying, there you go, baby. Yeah. <laughs> they were out there. I mean, they would get points. Let's face it. In almost any household, they would get points. Well, who was it that said that, you know, I mean, men are always yapping about sex and, and not being satisfied with sex in a relationship, but who was it that said that sex begins in the kitchen? 
I don't know, for but women. Um, exactly. Load the dishwasher. Yeah. It's really hot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Help clear the dishes. Help the, that's what women find appealing and sexy. And you know, I guess the, the part of the problem is is that you know, if you're 18 and at your most gorgeous point in life, that isn't what you're looking at. So no. that brings us to another conundrum, which is how do we teach 18-year-old girls or 15-year-old girls or 13-year-old girls? that that's what they should be looking at. Well, uh, you got me because... (laughs) because Well, maybe Italy could figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) Because the culture is so, you know, into merchandising girls, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just got back from Claire's. Uh, I took my granddaughter to Claire's because that's what she really, really wanted. She's eight years old, and she really, you know, and I gave her a budget. But we went there, right? That's mm-hmm. what, Claire's found this huge market of just and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. stuff. And, yeah. and, you know, I don't find any of the stuff there attractive at all. I mean, not at all. But I bet your granddaughter did. Yeah, she did. And uh and you know what she got was eyeshadow. Oh yeah, 8 years old. And <gasps> and she just she just puts it on when she's home and she plays, but then it is like okay, worrisome. You know, the pressures yeah. that she's telling me that she's receiving from her peers. Uh that oh, yeah. that's so scary. I'm glad my daughter's grown up. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I thought but I was then, stepping up raising might, her in the in the nineties, but boy. <laughs> but she might ha- she might present you with a granddaughter, so there's no escape. Oh oh oh! <laughs> wash your mouth out. No no no! Not yet. <laughs> not, I mean, not yet, but at some point in your life, which will yeah. be long. So anyway, yeah, so, I mean, you know, the, I don't need to reiterate to you the magazines and the images, and uh, even the New York Times is, big, and where I read it every day because I live in New York, um, you know, has a, I, a, a lot of pictures of near-naked women, which oh, is yeah. surprising me, and um but the constant push to have sex and to have a boyfriend and, you know, uh, it's just amazing. Yep, yep. And, and you know, it and it sort of got lost. I think the women's movement said, wait a minute, we don't want to get married and, we you know, we want to go to school and we want to have jobs. And they said, and the pushback is, oh, yeah, but you still got to have sex. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whenever we want. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Sometimes I think, you know, and I consider myself, you know, a feminist. I really do, even even though that word has become kind of verboten anymore. But I do. I believe in the whole premise behind the the women's movement that started in the 70s. You know, I was there. I was young, you know. And I really consider myself a feminist. However, sometimes I think we kind of shot ourselves in the foot with some of it. You know, I mean, going back to custody issues, you know, I mean, I recently spoke with a woman who had a a, a three-month-old baby, and the court had just ordered that the baby spend a week with the father and then a week with the mother, which meant she basically had to stop breastfeeding. Yeah, well, the court was whacked. Yeah, but, (laughs) but... You know, we we spent yeah. decades trying to convince everybody that parents make as good, you know, men make as good a parent as as uh, women. Well, you know, and and some sailors in, in the turn of the, you know many centuries ago did breastfeed. Men can breastfeed, but I don't. But I don't think both parents at this point in time can breastfeed. I don't know if anyone's tried it, um, but that you know there there has to be a balancing act. I yeah. was thinking I was thinking about child support today um just in general because I was at this court hearing and you know it reflects the fact that overall women don't make as much money. Yeah. We just don't. And guys don't what is do it, as much, and guys don't do, Yeah, and guys don't do as much laundry. That's Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
you know, and even, uh, you know, this is an anecdotal thing. I've never read a study on this, but even my my friends, my contemporaries, and those younger than me that I know who uh, claim to have a very, very equal marriage or equal relationship, right. um, it's still the woman who makes the, the calls to find the cleaning lady. It's still the woman who makes the calls and does the research to find the daycare person. Um you know, I, and I look at it from my <clears throat> advanced age, and I think, well, that's not so equal because it's all about taking responsibility. Yeah. And if he's not taking responsibility for finding daycare or for, um, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, yippee skippy that he's doing it, but is he taking responsibility for it or just waiting for you to tell him to go ahead and do that? I don't know. You, you know, some women could. So I did. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, well, we won't be, but but give us a chance. Um, yeah, <laughs> I just thought, I, I just want to go back to that dad because I was like, if that dad, I I, I understand the dad wants uh, a connection with his daughter, and I think that that's fabulous. Um, however, at at this point in that infant's life, it, it's in the best interest of that infant in lots of ways to continue breastfeeding. So I think that dad needed to re- arrange. Um, his visiting around that reality because the child will get older and won't yeah. need that constant contact with uh, the mother. Uh, yeah, yeah. But so, three months, I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I don't know what they were thinking. That breastfeeding yeah. wasn't important, and it is. Yep. So. Well, I think, yeah, I, and I think that that, again, this is another show, but I think that's uh, indicative of how the courts view children. Um, they say that they are looking out for the best interests of the child, but I don't believe so. I, I think that if they were really looking out for the best interests of the child, you know, a situation like that would not have happened. Um, well, uh, yeah, I, I think too often they're looking out for the best interests of the the male party. and. Yep. And and at way back in you know, a long time ago, we uh, Women's E News published this big story about the fact that the standard, the best interest of the child, was was not a good standard. And this was the dean of Duke Law School issued uh, a report that had the support of all sorts of lawyers all around the country to ban in that standard for custody decisions and to use the care standard, which is who has been caring for this child, who has taken the child to the pediatrician, who uh, who has the vaccination records, who makes sure the child eats, who who, who buys the clothing for the child, who who takes the child to school and other you know, and when the child's older. Um and to use a caretaking standard rather than, and I think what the best interest of the child, because too often, I mean, that's a, a judgment call, right? It's like, oh, yeah. dad, dad has more money, dad has a nicer apartment, a newer mm-hmm. car, whatever, right? So, um, and it becomes more of a property right dispute, which yeah. where judges they rule on property all the time. Unit, right, and yep. somehow they get confused. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, if it I, eats I, and crawls and you know has yeah. the potential for talking, it is no longer property. <laughs> it's not property. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh dear. Well, so, I want to. I, I, I still don't understand why that uh, uh, recommendation from this whole body of lawyers has not been widely adopted. It just makes so much sense. Who's taking care of the baby? And if, if you're breastfeeding, you use at least um, the first year, right? And then things can change after the first year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, and there are ways for a father to bond, even if he's not living in the household, I would think. I would think. But uh, I don't know. I want to get back to this article that you wrote because it's so good. Um, and it is uh, go to womensenews.org, and it will open to their, their home page. And when you get there, you will see this article, and it is called uh, Speakers. 
to find peace and domestic violence. That's by Rita Henley Jensen, and um, it's it's a good article. And while I was perusing your article there, I also went to the one that's called Collateral Damage in Syria, Women and Girls Fleeing Violence. And, um, you know, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? I know you didn't write that story, but... Well, that's very uh, that's a very exciting project that that we've undertaken. Uh, right now, Women's E News has three staffers in Jordan: uh, a reporter, a videographer, and an oral historian. And um, gathering news stories and images and oral histories of female refugees across the across the age spectrum. And so the first story as a result of this effort, and they got there September 10th. So the first story was going to appear on our, our site Monday. And it, and it deals with the issue that the female refugees have difficulty getting to school. And so they're just growing up un, uneducated. And then the Syrians were very educated people. They can't go to school because the schools are overcrowded, even though Jordan has started a second shift in all the public schools, specifically for the refugees, but there's still not enough. They can only um, educate about a third. And then the girls are afraid to walk along the, the, in this strange territory, strange town, to school. They could... They just ex- escape from war, and there's nothing that says that girls are safe, <laughs> right? And then thirdly, they they need to stay home and help their their mother take care of the younger siblings because they're living in tents or whatever. Um, so you're having a generation of girls growing up without access to education. And so that's that's what we mean by collateral damage. It's that, like, you know, if you follow the news, you get pictures of buildings destroyed. Well, yes, the buildings are being destroyed, but and yes, people have died. Um, but this is the other damage. Uh, you know, it. it um... And by the way, so we're going to have. This is just the first of many stories that as a team is going to produce along with their along with photos of the of the of the female refugees in Jordan. Oh. Wow. Yeah, some I I was very impressed by this. Um and again referencing women's dot org and on the home page you're gonna find that. You're gonna find all sorts of of uh, really significant stories. So um, just go there, womensenews.org. I, I usually hit it every day, at least at least every other day, and um, you get some um, information about everything going on in the world. And as long as we're here, I'm also going to click on the abortion story. Oh, uh, yeah. Pregnant volunteers aid India's fetal sex law. What? Tell us about that one. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Well, what's um, fetal sex the, law? Yeah. Well, I'm sure you're aware that um, once sonograms were introduced into India, um, the parents began to abort female fetuses because they wanted male children. Mm-hmm. And so India passed a law that said it was, you know, it was illegal to abort a female fetus because it was female, mm-hmm. or she was female. Um, but things continued <laughs> at a pace, and because it's illegal, it just sort of created you know secret channels to get this done. So in order, so in this one province in India, I think we'll have to double check the story, but it says eighty-eight girls are born per one hundred boys. And if if nature takes its course, more girls are born than than boys. So usually it's like 108 girls to boys. So it's, this is a dramatic decrease in the number of girls. 
and it, it just throws the whole society out of whack. Yeah. Um, because there are not not enough brides when everyone grows up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, how to prosecute these people who are performing the the illegal abortions? Well, you had to prove it, and so they have this program in which they have to and that they are gaining volunteers who are pregnant to go into these abortion mills and say, I would like to get rid of my female fetus. And they have to be pregnant with a female fetus. And then when they say, okay, fine, just step this way, uh, then they call the cops and there's a prosecution and they have to testify. So these are incredibly brave and determined young women. And the one that we interviewed ended up the the cops got like stuck in traffic or something and she was by herself and they were saying right this way and she ended up hiding herself in the bathroom until her until the backup arrived so i mean they're taking quite a significant risk but but this is common uh, also in china yeah. well They've been doing that in China for decades, haven't they? As a matter of yeah. fact, I was reading that, um, just as you pre- mentioned, that once they reach you know, childbearing age and marriage age, it's a huge problem. And I understand in China, my daughter came back from China after spending about a year there, and apparently there is much competition for women um, at that marriageable age, and um, men are having to come up with, um, buying apartments. And apparently, that's the, one of the the selling points for a young man is that if he owns his own apartment, you know that's a, you know you may as well be a Rockefeller, you know. Yeah. And um, so there's this fierce competition for females because of such you know sex selective breeding, I guess you'd call it. You know, for the yeah. last thirty years. But also, I think um, in North. East China, they they kidnap North Korean girls, yeah, <laughs> or young women. I mean, there's a lot of repercussions: uh, sex trafficking, uh, just purchasing a bride. It's yeah, there's competition, and then there's other strategies, well, all of which are not good. Yeah, one of the things that occurs to me is, and and again, you know, what do I know? But um, when uh, there's a rare commodity and there's competition over a commodity, you treat the commodity well. Yes. But that doesn't seem to be the case with females in India, does it? No. And <laughs> I, it, <laughs> actually not. So I uh-huh. think, uh, you know, if the culture despises women to the level that they're willing to um, do sex-selective abortions, that it's it's could be an indication of other hostility, um, <laughs> but, that, but yeah. women are are a rare commodity now. I mean, gosh, you gotta be nice to them, don't you? If you want to have any progeny, I guess uh, I guess we can just okay. roll across to another culture and grab women. Uh, you know, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know how how we turn the tables on the on the whole thing. Uh, there's obviously a limited supply of men willing to do laundry. <laughs> and, and there's all, but there's already such intense competition for husbands in general, and I think that's worldwide. You know, and if doing laundry was, you know, if it got out there that a certain man was willing to do laundry, can you imagine the competition? But I don't think that'll necessarily... <laughs> <laughs> I love this conversation. <laughs> okay, All right. I just think, uh, yeah, I just think it'll get tougher for women, you know. So I, yeah, yeah that uh, six-year-olds will have to wear eyeshadow. I don't know, you know. Well, wasn't there a big news item this week about some Halloween, sexy Halloween costume for two-year-olds that they got pulled off the shelves? I'm not surprised. I mean, I was—I just remember—I just came from Claire's. 
And you're sitting yeah. there thinking, what's the problem? Sexy two-year-old. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I know where so you can larger, get it. In my larger marketing base. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Let's go to something that's more positive, okay? Okay. I found this story about whales. Welsh Assembly member says victims of domestic violence and same-sex relationships need more support. Welsh Labour Assembly member Rebecca Evans has asked the Welsh government to ensure that victims of domestic violence and same-sex relationships are not disadvantaged when it comes to accessing services and support. Well, hooray. Kind of a, yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't say. Um, it doesn't uh, say what the reaction. Uh, necessarily was, but uh, Wales local government minister Leslie Griffiths said, this is something that I have considered since taking up this post, and I uh, recently agreed to fund some further research to identify the scale of the issue within the LGBT communities and to assess if there are specific barriers for individuals accessing support services. So, yay on Wales. Yay on Wales. And I have a book on my bookshelf from the 1980s, about same-sex relationships and violence. Um, Yeah, there's no escaping. I mean, there's, you know, whatever grown-ups or, or I guess, uh, late teens bring to those relationships, they do. Yeah. And the the need for control is there. Um, And it's very disappointing, but... It's it's true. There's no escape from our history. Yep. Yep, exactly. Exactly. But at least, you know, in Little Wales, somebody's standing up and taking a stand on that. And making, and making it public because I haven't... Have you heard other public officials take this issue on? No, I haven't heard of that. I haven't, I haven't either. So, you know... You know and, and I've been paying attention a long time, and so have you. So... <laughs> And if anybody does, please call in. Yeah, yeah. Um, getting back to my little uh, my thing on India, I forgot that I have a story here that says uh, from an Indian columnist who's basically talking about the situation with rape and women's violence in India. Yeah. And he says that rape and women's violence are perceived as secondary issues in uh, India. I and think that, that that's true in the U.S. as well. I was going to say, I think I would expand that to the worldwide. Yeah, I think it's certainly true in the U.S. Secondary. Yeah, yeah. and uh, the perpetrators, I mean, the far right are very involved in women's issues, i.e. the whole issue about contraception and abortion and all that, and, you know, Medicaid and all that. Far right is very involved. Maybe it's not good for women, but nevertheless they're paying attention. But the more progressive forces, I think, historically have said to women, um, okay, as soon as we fix global climate change, we're going to get right to that. Or, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, as soon as fuel crisis, yeah. 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 Um, and um, that that goes to health issues. Oh, we have, you know, heart disease or diabetes. And you say, but what about the maternal mortality? And they're like, oh, yeah, we've got to get to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Poverty. Well, yeah. You know, and in fact, life is a series of triage. I mean, we all pick what's most significant to start with. You know. Yeah. Um, so, in some respects, that is uh, understandable. Um, but in other respects, it's like, hello, do you not understand how significant this problem is? You know, because yeah. it does it affects the economy greatly. It affects healthcare greatly. Um, it affects next generation greatly, uh, you know. So, I, I guess it's you know it, it's what you are conditioned to look for and to consider important. But you know? and it goes back. I mean, it's it's it plays out just all kinds of ways. Back to the sex selective abortion, or a woman who you know lived in London for six years after domestic violence, or. Uh, getting kicked out it just we just can't imagine that happening to men and and it's it's the the low esteem that that women hold and you're like you sort of wonder how that happened i mean i e we're producing the babies and uh is that like is that are they mad at us about that i mean there's just really nothing 
Well, you know, I think that's my theory is is that that's probably closer to the truth than we care to admit. It's like, you know, if somebody has something or can do something that I can't do, I can get jealous. And well, the best there, way to do with my jealousy. Novel. Yeah. Pardon? I said there's this great novel, which is that's its central theory. It's called Norma Jean uh, Queen Bee or something like that. And it's hilarious. But that's its central theory that men could only swell up a little bit, but women swelled up for nine months. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings me to another one of my weird theories. I think that, you know, these, these coming-of-age rituals that, that are worldwide for young boys, you know, uh, you know, cutting marks, you know, into them or, you know, doing, you know, sending them out in the jungle to, you know, fight lions or tigers or whatever, all these rituals for young men um, to welcome them into manhood, I think, are um, trying to mimic a young woman's physical evidence of her coming into a uh, supposed adulthood with the menses. Now, how odd is that theory? Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that's my theory for the day. I'm just full of them. Um, okay, well, well, let's go. And I just wanted other... to uh, compare that to FGM, which is female genital mutilation, which is also a coming-of-age ritual in some cases. In some cases, it's uh, on, on infants and young girls. But, you know, that's... No. Yeah, well, some cultures do circumcision at around that same age, 13, well, 13 for yeah. boys. Yeah. So it's a it's a bloodletting, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Don't get me started on female genital mutilation. Um, okay. One other story coming out of South Africa, a very simple one, but basically the statistics show that a uh, big jump in uh, domestic violence issues in South Africa, and this is coming out of Pretoria. And um, my question is, is you know, is this just now we're we're starting to keep better track of it, or? Um, is it really uh, increasing, or what's your take on that, having been to South Africa? Yes, well, I was there when the Olympic uh, athlete was accused of murdering his girlfriend, um, which was quite remarkable. Um, he shot her through the bathroom door and claimed he thought she was an intruder. Um, so, um, that case in itself may have raised a lot of awareness about what domestic violence in is, and my phone is beeping. So oh, that means you're running out of battery. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! This is so terrible. You, so keep talking. I'll call you on the other line. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> well, dial now. Right. We don't want to lose you. <laughs> no, here I go. <laughs> okay, okay. You okay. call right back. Okay. Bye. <laughs> okay. Well, um, one of the things that uh, we were talking about is the issue of uh, reporting. And I think reporting has improved throughout the world in countries that are at least keeping track of it. But in the story about South Africa, I was just absolutely blown away by the police response to the fact that domestic violence had gone up. And, and uh, there were stories, uh, you know, quotes in the the uh, newspaper article that I read that was such uh, like, well, the police can't do everything. Police can't be expected to do anything about interpersonal violence because that's just going to happen. And uh, so the expectations, the expectations for what police could do, at least in South Africa, were kind of amazing and um disturbing at the same time so are you back with us rita i am good i was just saying that the article that i read about south africa was disturbing because it quoted a number of police officers or police uh, um, head honchos as saying that basically there wasn't a whole lot they could do about interpersonal violence they just really couldn't do that too much they couldn't be expected to interfere with interpersonal violence and really make an impact um and that's just the opposite of what we think here. We think police ought to be interfering with interpersonal violence and and um, pulling out the stops to try and and eradicate it. Um, well, that a- hasn't always been true. That's a that's a change, um, mm-hmm. and it's not a wholesale change. I think you could you know 
find police officers um, who who would say the same thing. But part of the um, change was basically public information campaigns that said, dear police officers, these domestic violence situations put you at risk too, and it's time to figure out how to deal with them. I think the second thing is that South Africa has such a bloody history, and we talked about that the last time, uh, from the colonial era when the British said that African women were not allowed, were technically children throughout their life and had no uh, human rights or civil rights, rights under the law at all. And so for the police to now say, oh, yes, the, the African women have the rights to police protection um, would, would require a, a major cultural shift. Because, uh, I, frankly, I think that white women in South Africa have more access to police protection than African women. And it's still a very highly divided country, as ours is, and um, it's not going to be easy. It is in the Constitution. It, we don't have women's rights in our Constitution. But having it in the Constitution and having an enormous cultural shift where women are fully citizens with the right to protection from the police department, etc., justice in the courts, the right to own property, um, etc., etc. Um, it's huge. And we've been working on it really nonstop since 1848 here in the U.S., and we've made really tremendous, uh, significant progress. We've still got a long way to go. Well, when you consider the thousands and thousands of years we spent with one dynamic, which is, you know, man in charge, woman take care of babies, um, it has been, even though it's been 150 years, it has been a, a really somewhat rapid change compared to that thousands of years of the status quo. So yeah. I would agree with you that we, even though sometimes it seems like it's one step forward and two steps backwards, women are making progress. Um, and the so fact much that so these that officers were asked the question is a good is a good thing, right? Yeah, they were quoted in yep. the press. Exactly. Um, so I think you know we're ending on a positive note here. I mean, you know, of all of these stories we've talked about today, at least in Wales. They're starting to really make some uh, positive strides, and hopefully, um, you know, we'll we'll see more positive strides. I look forward to watching or to uh, reading your your series on Syria and Syrian refugee women. I think that's going to be a really important one, and I'm going to give a little plug again for your website, womensenews.org. Just go there, and you will find all sorts of uh, marvelous news stories that will really help you understand women in the world, not just in your neighborhood. Once again, this has just been a tremendously, tremendously uh, uh, wonderful uh, show, I think. I've I've really enjoyed it, and the time has gone so fast. We usually end the show with a quote, and I actually have two quotes for today. One is from Kofi Annan. Gender equality is critical to the development and peace of every nation. And that's from Kofi Annan. And then another one is from Mary Ritter Beard, whom I do not recognize, 1876 to 1958. The dogma of women's historical subjection to men must be rated as one of the most fantastic myths ever created by the human mind. (laughs) Yeah, the dogma of women's complete historical subjection to men must be rated as one of the most fantastic myths ever created by the human mind. And uh, unfortunately, in a lot of countries, we're coming up with those myths and we're coming up with even more. But uh, hopefully we're making progress. It has been so wonderful to have you on the show. I look forward to having you on again sometime. And. Uh, it looks like uh, we have a couple of seconds left. Do you have any parting words for us, Rita? Stay safe, but keep fighting. <laughs> <laughs>
And on that note, I think we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much for being with us, Rita. And uh, thank you for being with us, listeners. And join us next week. We have another topic of great interest. And uh, actually, I think we're going to be having a, a real good conversation next week as well. So thank you for joining us. We are Three Women, Three Ways. I am Heather Stark, your host. We're here every Saturday morning at 11 o'clock Pacific Time. And we really look forward to you. And uh, join us next week. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.